Welcome to the Beacon Broadcast from Beacon Baptist Church in Burlington, North Carolina, featuring expositional Bible teaching by Pastor Greg Barkman. If you'd like to correspond with the Beacon Broadcast, or if you wish to support this radio ministry, write to The Beacon Broadcast, Post Office Box 159, Alamance, North Carolina, 27201, or find us on the web at beaconbaptist.com beaconbaptist.com The Beacon Broadcast is supported in part by the gifts of faithful listeners. Now with today's message from God's Word, here is Greg Barkman. In John chapter 15, Jesus Christ is speaking to his apostles in the upper room just hours literally before his crucifixion and his eventual departure from the world to return to heaven to sit upon the throne of God and to send the Holy Spirit to replace him in the lives of his apostles. And among the many other things that he taught them in the upper room discourse to get them ready for this event, he emphasized the necessity of abiding in him. In John 15, he gave the analogy of a grapevine, something that all of them would have been very familiar with. And he said, this is an illustration of the necessity that you be joined to me and stay joined to me. In other words, abide in me, because without that, you cannot maintain any fruitfulness, and if you do not remain connected to me, there's going to be serious consequences. Here's the way he put it in John 15, 4, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And so we spent some time talking about this issue of abiding in Jesus, or we might call it spiritual abiding and what it is. And we suggested to you that, among other things, it is dependence upon Christ, not upon ourselves. It is feeding upon the Word, not simple involvement in religion. It is communion with Christ, not activities or emotions. But then we went on from there to talk not only about what it means to abide in Christ, but what are the results of abiding in Christ, at least some of them. And that's where we are as we continue the broadcast today. Thank you for joining us on this Sunday, February 12. And many thanks to those whose financial gifts make it possible for us to continue teaching God's Word on this station. What are the results of abiding in Christ? Christ-likeness is one of them. The much fruit of verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Fruitfulness. And when we think about what that fruitfulness is, it is the manifestation of spiritual work, the work of the Holy Spirit, spiritual formation in our lives. 
And what is this formation that is taking place but Christ-likeness? That's what this fruit is. And so Christ-likeness is one of the first results of abiding in Christ. The second one is answered prayer. We've talked about this prior, but I just want to remind you, verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in, abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. Again, please don't think that this is saying whatever you desire, if you have enough faith, you will receive it. That's not what it says. That is the way it is often misrepresented. But what it says is, listen to the words, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Not if you have enough faith, but if you abide in me, and if my words abide in you. In other words, if our abiding in Christ shapes our desires, makes sanctifies our desires, focuses our desires upon Christ and upon his interests and his kingdom and upon things that are eternal. And when abiding in Christ, with his words abiding in us, shapes our hearts and minds in this direction, then yes, whatever you ask, you will receive because you are praying powerfully according to God's will. So, answered prayer is a result of abiding in Christ. Number three, the one we dealt with on the broadcast last Sunday, is assurance of salvation. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so will you be my disciples. And I explained to you that that could also be translated, so you will prove to be my disciples. Or so you will manifest yourself to be my disciples. Or so you will give evidence that you are my disciples. How is that? By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And in the bearing of much fruit, you will prove to be my disciples. And when that fruit assures you that you are a disciple of Christ, that of course takes care of the assurance of salvation problem that some people have. The way to solve your assurance of salvation problem is not to resort to some kind of gimmick or carnal means that is not found in the Bible. Pray a prayer and then write, write the time and the date in the uh, inside uh, cover of your Bible. And if any time you doubt, go back and look at it again. And that way you'll know that you asked Christ to save you on this particular date. And so that gives you assurance. You, you know you're going to heaven because you prayed the prayer on this date, and God always keeps his promises. Do you know, the Bible doesn't actually tell us that we shall be saved if we pray the prayer or if we ask Jesus into our heart or some of the other terms that are used in similar fashion, the Bible tells us that if we believe. Now, believing will almost always result in some kind of prayer to God, whether inward or outward. In other words, whether from the heart or actually spoken with the lips, it's going to be a crying out of the heart unto God, no question about it. 
That's the expression of faith. But it's not the prayer that saves because it's possible to pray a prayer, to say words, to be coached into praying a prayer that does not result in salvation. Do you remember what James said? He said, you pray and do not receive because you ask amiss that you might consume it upon your own lusts. It is possible to pray with wrong motives. It's possible to pray for something that is a selfish desire. You say, well, salvation couldn't be a selfish desire. It couldn't be prayed for with wrong motives, could it? Of course it can. If you are told that if you do not receive Christ, you will be lost forever and spend eternity in hell. But you're also told all you got to do is pray a prayer and ask Jesus to save you, and then you'll never go to hell. Why would a person pray that prayer? Could he be praying it with wrong motives? Could his desire to be to escape hell rather than to have his sins cleansed, rather than to be joined to Christ, rather than to become a follower of Christ, rather than to become a fervent servant of the Lord Jesus Christ? Of course he can and will, and many have. So it's not praying a prayer that guarantees your salvation. Writing down a time and a date when you prayed for salvation is no guarantee that that was a Holy Spirit-wrought prayer. But if there is spiritual fruit, if there is the evidence of real discipleship going on, now there's a place where assurance can be found, because that can only be attributed to the work of the Spirit of God in your heart. You can pray a prayer selfishly, but you can't produce spiritual fruit selfishly. You understand what I'm saying? You can pray a prayer for wrong motives, very selfish, self-centered motives, without any real desire to yield yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, but you cannot bear the marks of discipleship selfishly and with wrong motives. You really can't. That's a spiritual work that is accomplished by the Spirit of God. And so, back to verse 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so you prove to be one of my disciples. There's assurance of salvation. But let's move on. What's another result of abiding in Christ? It is the experience of the reality of God's love. Verse 9, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. Experience the reality of God's love. The love of God is something that is very commonly talked about in Christian circles, among God's people, in churches, and even outside of churches. Many times the love of God becomes the central message of evangelism, again, very unwisely. You won't find that in the Bible. (laughs) I promise you, look, look, look. 
You won't find that in the Bible. I remember talking to a dear, godly missionary, probably 30 or 40 years ago now, about this very subject, at least 30 years ago. And he had been taught to open evangelistic conversations with the love of God. Tell people how much God loves you. And that's the way to talk to them about salvation, about their need of Christ, because God loves you. And I said to this dear man, can you show me any place in the Bible where Christ and the apostles ever evangelized in that way, ever declared to people God's love for them and used that in their preaching the gospel to them? He had a hard time coming up with anything. He finally said, well, what about Jesus and Nicodemus in John chapter 3? Because that's the chapter which says, And God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Didn't Jesus say that to Nicodemus? And the truth of the matter is, there's two things about that that you need to understand. Number one, even in that place, and there's a question mark over that that I'll show you in a moment, but even in that place, Jesus is not recorded as saying to Nicodemus, God loves you, Nicodemus. He doesn't say that. The language is for God so loved the world. That's that's more accurate, and that's more general, isn't it? That's not so particular. He did not say to Nicodemus, God loves you, or my heavenly Father loves you. He did not. And he may not even have said, here's the other part of that, he may not even have said the words of John 3.16 to Nicodemus at all. This is a matter of debate among Bible students as to where the conversation with Nicodemus ends and where the Apostle John, by the Spirit of God, adds additional material that was not spoken to Nicodemus, but is found in that same chapter and following the conversation with Nicodemus. So there is some relationship in the context, but it's very possible, and I would say even likely, that even that well-known text in John 3.16 was not spoken to Nicodemus at all. But that aside, if we'll, if we'll give that text to the conversation with Nicodemus, we still don't find Jesus saying to Nicodemus, My heavenly Father loves you, and I challenge you to find any apostle, any evangelist, even Christ himself, who talked to anyone in that way, who evangelized them by saying, God loves you, my Father loves you. Think about the love of God, the wonderful love of God. You won't find that. So why do we tend to make that the most prominent message of our evangelism today? Well, it's, it's obvious, isn't it, that it's because we don't pay attention to the Bible and don't even endeavor to evangelize the way that Christ and the apostles evangelized. Somehow, I don't know what it is, but somehow it seems like Christians in our day don't even think that's important. It's not important how they evangelized. We know how to evangelize. It's not important that we study the Bible to find out how Christ and the apostles did it. Why, we know as much as they did. We know more than they did. We, we know the best way to do it. My, oh my, oh my, oh my. What pride, what folly, 
what audacity. I think we would be much better off if we would study how Jesus and the apostles evangelized. They didn't evangelize with the theme of God's love. They did not. But there is much emphasis in Scripture concerning God's people being assured of God's love, God's people being told about God's love. The love of God is primarily, primarily, if not exclusively, but certainly primarily, a subject for the people of God, not for the unconverted. But one of the results of abiding in Christ is a growing sense of God's love. It is the way we experience, we who know the Lord, experience the reality of God's love. Back to verse 9. This is all in the context of abiding in Christ. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. He just said in verse 4, abide in me and I in you. Now in verse 9 he says, abide in my love. So there must be, if, if this isn't a synonymous phrase, abide in me, abide in my love, it certainly is a closely connected phrase. To abide in Christ is to abide in his love. To abide in Christ is to experience his love. To abide in his Christ is to know his love. It is to understand it. It is to experience it in a way that it cannot be known and experienced apart from abiding in him. So back to verse 9 again. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. So the love of God, this wonderful subject, it is an amazing subject. It ought to be emphasized among the people of God. We ought to come to a greater appreciation of and a greater experience with the love of God, which we will do as we abide in Christ. Yes, everybody talks about God's love. Well, not everybody, but an awful lot of people Christian and and even non, or we talk to non-Christians about it. And nearly everybody claims the love of God. If they know anything at all about the Bible and Christianity, they are quite certain that God loves them. Because they've been told that so many times. Now, I'm not saying that he doesn't. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not going to swing the pendulum the other way, as I've heard some to do, and say... God doesn't love the sinner. He only loves his children. I'm not going to say that. What I will say is that the Bible tells us over and over again that there are different levels of the love of God, and the love that God has for his children is not the same love as the love that he has for rebels. It's not the same quality of love. It's not the same same amount of love, if I could put it that way. It's not the same love. There is a love of God for sinners, but it is not anything like the love of God for saints. And this is telling us how to experience the love of God as saints. But as I say, nearly everybody talks about God's love. Nearly everybody claims God's love. Nearly everybody 
tries in some way to relate himself to the love of God. There's a lot of comfort that people derive from that, and I'm afraid in many cases, false comfort. Well, God loves me, so he wouldn't send me to hell. He will if you're not in Christ. He will if you're not truly trusting in him. That's the only way to have your sins cleansed. We're all sinners. It's not that that uh, good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. Well, in a sense, that is true because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses God's people from all their sin, and that makes them good people. But in ourselves, there's no difference between those who go to heaven and those who go to hell. In ourselves, we're all sinners, deserving of hell. But there are two categories of people. There are sinners unsaved by grace, and there are sinners saved by grace. And sinners saved by grace are going to heaven. Sinners who are not saved by grace are going to hell. So there is a, I think there's a a level of comfort and false assurance in this overemphasis upon the love of God that allows everybody to claim it and then come to some kind of comfort in thinking, well, God loves me, therefore he will never send me to hell. He will send everyone to hell whose sins have not been washed in the blood of Christ. And that certainly isn't everybody. If it were, nobody would go to hell. If the blood of Jesus Christ cleansed the sins of everybody, then nobody would go to hell. But clearly, many people are going to hell. You can't read the Bible with your eyes open and with an honest ear and heart without coming to that conclusion. Nobody said more about the dangers of hell and the reality of hell and people going to hell than Jesus himself. Yes, the meek and lowly Jesus. Yes, the kind and loving Jesus. Yes, the the ultimately gracious Jesus. Yes, the self-sacrificing Jesus who laid down his life on the cross that sinners can be spared eternal damnation in hell. But this same Jesus warned about hell, warned about the dangers of hell, warned people not to go into eternity in unbelief. That's real love, is to tell people the truth. But the question is, with so many people talking about the love of God and applying the love of God to themselves, why do so few people seem to live in the strength and the power and the reality of it? Is it because they are not abiding in Christ? And I think that's the answer very clearly. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. That's a powerful statement, a short verse and a powerful statement. Think about it. What can we say about the Father's love for the Son? I think we would all agree it is an immense love. It is it is a love beyond measure, a love beyond comprehension. It is probably the greatest outpouring of love that you can find anywhere in the universe, the Father's love for the Son. But Jesus says, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Now, I don't know what all is bound up in that little word, as. Is he saying, 
in the same proportion, in the same measure that the Father has loved me, in that same proportion, in that same measure, I love you. In other words, I love you just as much as the Father loved me. Is that what he's saying? It very well may be, but at the very least, he's saying that there's some relationship, some parallel between the vast love of the Father for the Son and the vast love of the Son for his disciples, for his children, for these apostles that he's talking to. Even if it's not the same measure of love that the Father poured out upon the Son, it's got to be an incredible measure of love. It has to be a high quality of love. And Jesus says that, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. But that's not where the verse ends. He goes on to say, Abide in my love. Abide in it. Live in it. This is similar to, at least closely connected to, abiding in Christ. Whatever it means to abide in Christ, to be joined to Christ, to have that vital union with Christ, to have that life of Christ flowing in us and our clinging to Christ in order that that life of Christ may continue to flow in us, that sets the pattern for how we are to abide in his love. This is a distinguishing love. It is an infinite love declared by Jesus to his own, and it is experienced by the disciples of Christ. But How? Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You don't hear much about that, do you? You don't hear that emphasized. You don't hear anybody say, yes, the Bible tells us that God is love, but if you are going to be loved by God, you must keep his commandments. Whoa. Whoa, you can't say that. You can't say that. Well, okay, just read the verse. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, there's no question in our mind that Jesus kept his Father's commandments. He did what his Father wanted him to do. He carried out the will of of his heavenly Father. That's another way of saying that he kept his Father's commandments. Whatever his Father directed him to do, he did it with perfect obedience. That's what it means to keep his commandments. And he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Well, I thought God's love just came to us regardless. I didn't think there was any requirement or stipulation to it. Well, just read this verse again. Now, obviously, we aren't capable of keeping his commandments unless there is a work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And when we have been given life by the Spirit of God, when we have been born again by the Spirit of God, when we have spiritual life, when we have a new nature, we will have new desires. We will have a desire to obey Christ. And as we obey Christ as we have this heartfelt desire to keep his commandments, as the language says it here, in that, then, we will 
live in his love. We will abide in his love. We will experience a fullness of his love that there's no other way to experience. And this is a result of abiding in Christ. What are we talking about? The results of abiding in Christ. What are they? Number one, Christ-likeness. Number two, answered prayer. Number three, assurance of salvation. Number four, experiencing the reality of God's love. Not just something to be talked about, but something to experience, something to know, something to possess, something to change us as we abide in his love. Until next week, Greg Barkman saying good day. May God give you his eternal peace. Amazing.